nothing is really going to change unless we actually believe that the consequences of not disrupting ourselves and moving quicker are, are worse than, God forbid, you know, we, we spend some money on the wrong thing, you know, we pick the wrong winner, we set up a program that fails. Uh, unless we believe that those consequences are actually kind of marginal considering the possible implications of losing our competitive advantage or, God forbid, a war, you know, we're still, in my opinion, just going to be kind of screwing around the margins here. Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Commander Matthew Horton. Today, we are joined by Mr. Christian Bros. Prior to going into the private sector, Mr. Bros was the former staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee from 2015 to 2018, and prior to that served as the senior policy advisor to Senator John McCain. He began his career in government service as a speechwriter to two secretaries of state, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. He is the author of The Kill Chain. Defending America and the Future of High-Tech Warfare, and he has agreed to come on the podcast and discuss leadership lessons from his book. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee and join us in the wardroom. Mr. Bros, welcome to the wardroom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a little bit of background on the kill chain? What was your motivation for writing it? Yeah. So when, uh, when I was working in the Senate Armed Services Committee, 2009 to 2018, I guess, I was becoming kind of increasingly concerned about the loss of U.S. military advantage. The more I sort of worked on these problems, the more I worked in the in the Congress, uh, the more I saw of it, the more I started to sort of have thoughts as to you know why this was happening in sort of a broad, multifaceted way, um, and and you know generally kind of what we should be thinking about doing about it. So the idea of writing a book as I was leaving government was really just kind of an attempt to distill everything that I had been kind of thinking in the course of my government service and, and try to just get a conversation, not really going because the conversation was going. It was more to kind of bring it out into the open. Um, so much of these conversations, you know, were happening, you know, in private, behind closed doors, you know, kind of around the water cooler and, and really just wanted to sort of bring this out for more of a general audience to really kind of put the focus on what is the problem that we need to solve and, you know, not to architect, you know, hundred bullet points of like what to do about it, but to try to start to articulate some broad trajectories uh, for how to thinking about solving it. Well, I appreciate you kind of um, ringing the alarm bell for us because, you know, in the introduction, you you paint a bleak picture, you know, and you describe a situation I don't think a lot of Americans are really aware of. And namely, it's that the U.S. military has kind of lost a lot of the advantages that we've enjoyed since the fall of the former Soviet Union. So I got, I got a question for you. How much of that erosion is actually like a quantitative or qualitative decline? And, and how much of it do you think is cultural? Yeah, I, I think... You know, there's a there's a temptation on the part of you know Americans to always kind of think that it's about us, and I think part of the answer to your question is that it's not about us. You know, it is about what competitors, in particular, kind of peer competitors, uh, have been doing over a, a very long period of time, as far as watching how the United States operates and building up and modernizing advanced military capabilities of their own. Uh, to really undermine the American way of war, to call into question all of the underlying assumptions on which we project military power. And, you know, my, my point in the book is that, unfortunately, they've, they've gotten pretty good at this um, and they're moving quite quickly. You know, and I think, you know, if you, if you really kind of focus on sort of that pacing threat, that in some respects has surpassed us in, in some of these areas. So to, to answer your question, it is about uh, a relative decline for sure where America just does not have the 
share of global power and, and military power that we once did. And, and I think that is just a process that has been playing out for a while. It's accelerating, you know, and on sort of a linear projection basis, I don't think that's going to change. Um, I think the, the other kind of answer to your question is, you know, it is very much things that we have done to ourselves. And I think some of this is imminently quantifiable as far as the, the inability to generate kind of the quantities of systems that we're going to need to deal with a competitor that is many times our size and potentially in the near future will equal um, you know, our GDP. But I think at a deeper level, it is something that can be explained culturally, but I don't think it's culturally insofar as um, you know, a lot of times we talk about it, you know, as far as like a, you know, a, a problem of an innovation culture or a lack thereof. I mean, I think that the biggest point on culture that I would point to is the period of time that we occupied in the aftermath of the Cold War, where we really didn't have a pure competitor. You know, we were not facing a, you know, a great power competitor, uh, which had been the case through, you know, most of our history, most of world history. Um, and I think in that sort of, you know, 25 year period, uh, in the absence of of kind of real concerted geopolitical competition, I think a lot of that competitive edge atrophied. You know, I think we took a lot for granted. I think, um, you know, you talk about necessity as the mother of invention. There wasn't a lot of necessity. You know, we were laps ahead of the nearest competitor. And, you know, we could pretty much do the things we wanted to do where and when we wanted to, uh, to do them. And, you know, I think a lot of the the story that I tell in the book is not so much, you know, that that, that we sort of thought that. It's the the, the, the time in which, you know, we continued to sort of live under that belief when all of the evidence was kind of blinking red in our face uh, that that world was going away. And just then the inability to, to begin responding in, you know, in a way and with an urgency that was really re uh, required in light of uh, the character of the threat, the challenge that we're facing. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the defense acquisition process, because as engineering duty officers, I'm sure you're aware, you know, one of our core competencies is, is we are the acquisition core for the Navy. And you discuss the defense acquisition system really kind of shifting away from prioritizing speed towards prioritizing things like fairness, oversight. Probably the biggest thing would be ease of administration or our ability to make sure that um, the checkers, I think, can make sure everything is being done correctly per, per the requirements. So how do we go about um, let me ask you this. Is, is there a way still to, for us to preserve fairness and still pick winners and still get that speed that we need? So, yeah, I, I guess I would say two main things. Um, you know, the, the first is actually to broaden the aperture a bit. And, and I, I try to do this in the book, but, um, you know, it's worth doing here. You know, I think the defense acquisition system comes in for a lot of criticism and blame. And, you know, in my experience, it deserves most of it. The problem is really much bigger, though. Um, you know, the requirements process that starts this whole kind of planning process for the department, you know, leading from requirements then into programming and budgeting, only then getting into acquisition uh, to say nothing of, you know, authorization and appropriation of funds to actually make all of this go uh, from the Congress. If you actually sort of stitch that whole process together from end to end, from I have an idea of something I need to like, no joke, I am buying it with money that has been authorized and appropriated from Congress inside of an acquisition program, that cycle is years. It is the antithesis of what we want the kill chain to be uh, in an operational sense, fast, responsive, dynamic. We've so elongated that process that it's making it impossible for new entrants to get traction and really generate new capabilities and disruptive approaches to problems. It's making it incredibly difficult for what comes out the other end of that 
to still be relevant considering that the requirements for it were written, you know, years and years prior to, you know, actual metal being bended, code being written, capability being fielded. So it's it's that process from end to end that I think is the is the is the real problem. You know, what has kind of been been made into something almost impervious to disruption that at a time now we're saying what we really need is the ability to disrupt ourselves. So I think, you know, that that's kind of part of the problem. So then it gets to the question of how do you think about competition and fairness uh, and things like that. And I think this is again where the way we have thought about this process largely was, you know, kind of built around how we needed to acquire sort acquire sort of large industrial era kind of capabilities where you were going to spend a lot of money up front you were going to have very long kind of research development you know kind of building phases and then at the end of the day you weren't going to buy very many of the the systems that came out the other end um, large capital ships you know large aircraft things like that the problem i think we have now is that a, you know that system is still relevant for those kinds of assets that we're still going to acquire in some capacity and still have a have a requirement for into the future but it just doesn't work for the kinds of capabilities that i think many of us are talking about now in terms of lower cost unmanned systems autonomous systems software defined systems you know munitions things like that where you you want to be buying these things more frequently as a way of one just keeping technology refreshed two as a way of actually generating competition in the system because more vendors are able to compete with one another uh, to really deliver disruptive capability and then i think three most importantly to actually create incentives that generate disruption rather than we actually get the thing that we programmed for a decade ago even if a decade from now that thing's not relevant to us. The threat has moved, technology's moved on. Um, how do we actually create incentives in our system for disruption? And I think, you know, generally speaking, we're overthinking this problem. Like, I think the answer comes down to, we need to buy these things with a greater frequency. Um, so you can still have competition. I would actually argue that the only way you get real competition is by picking winners. It's by showing kind of all of industry or all of the world this is the thing that we want today. It's not going to be the thing that we necessarily want, you know, in three years or even perhaps 18 months, but it is the best thing that we have at our disposal today. But we're going to come right back out again and do this in some degree of, you know, kind of uh, rapidity. And the incentive to industry then is, look, if you lost this round, all hope is not lost. You can come back and compete in the next phase. I think the incentive to you know, but but by the same token, right? If if you did win, don't get lazy and complacent because we're going to be gunning for you. Everyone's going to be gunning for you when we go out and and sort of recompete this. So I, I guess it's to say that you can absolutely have fairness um, and still pick winners. I think the thing that allows us to do both of those things is increasing the velocity by which we are actually buying a a certain class of systems. Again, you're not going to do this for aircraft carriers. You're not going to do this for you know GBSD. Those are still going to be large, exquisite systems that we're going to need, like one or maybe two companies in America are going to be capable of building them. And the government is going to have to sort of micromanage that process to ensure we get, you know, fairness and cost effectiveness and the like. What I'm saying is that there's a whole world of capability that we actually really desperately need that is going to be very relevant to the question of how do we generate, you know, kind of greater mass on the battlefield in the future? How do we compete faster, close kill chains with greater scale, greater speed? Where what we really need to be doing is is buying capability faster. You can do that fairly. You can do it based on actual objective problems that need to be solved. 
Um, but the outcome needs to be you actually pick a winner today and then you come back and recompete with a frequency so that winners don't get complacent and losers don't feel like, you know, it's it's fight or die and all hope is lost if they if they didn't get chosen this round. No, I appreciate that. It's a good perspective. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit here, kind of shifting the relationship between industry and, and the government or the military a little bit too, because you know, we talk a lot about uh, government industry partnerships and things. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, the military used to be the center of innovation. Um, but you detail this in the book, and I think it's a chapter, it's like uh, the Tale of Two Cities, but you talk about like Washington and Silicon Valley and, and how those two kind of slowly grown apart over the years. And you detail a, a lot of the reasons why. Um, but it seems like we've created a lot of incentives that drive out these innovators from the defense industry, a little bit like you were talking so how do we go about rebuilding that relationship with those innovative companies and and truly embrace speed and creativity? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd go back to, you know, the, the comment I made earlier. I, I you know, this is a conversation that, you know, I think we've been having, you know, for for years now. And my feeling is just increasingly like we're overthinking this problem. You know, the the reason a lot of that, you know, kind of void grew between, you know, Silicon Valley and Washington was because Washington sort of made it increasingly difficult for those kinds of companies to work with the Department of Defense. But I think more to the point, they stopped buying the things that they were producing. So as a result, you know, you had at the same time, you know, kind of an opening up of the commercial market where the kinds of technologies that we're talking about here, artificial intelligence, software, um, data analytics, things like that, you know, just kind of exploded. So, you, you had a phenomenal kind of group of talent in America and they went to where the opportunity was. You know, it's kind of no simple, no simpler than sort of economics 101, where the problems that the commercial world was sort of driving the development of these technologies to solve were things like advertising optimization and, uh, you know, things that I would argue are less important than national defense. But these were the kinds of companies that were succeeding. They were growing. They were the kinds of places where people felt they could be fulfilled and really kind of achieve their full potential as engineers. And, and that's kind of where the talent went. So, you know, I think if we, if we actually want to think about how do we change this with respect to national defense, there's a lot of different elements to this, you know, make it less difficult, you know, things that we've all been kind of talking about around the margins. But at, at the end of the day, it goes back to the conversation we were just having. Unless the government really puts resources against the kinds of capabilities that, you know, these disruptive companies are producing and really buys them at scale. We're never really going to get there. You know, it's always going to be kind of an afterthought, a rounding error, but it's never going to be core to what the Department of Defense is doing. It's never going to be core to what these businesses as businesses are doing. So, you know, I think this is kind of the the precipice we're on right now, where, you know, back in 2014, 15, 16, uh, the Department of Defense and Congress was making a lot of noise about, you know, we need to reach out to these kinds of new entrants. We need to create pathways and rapid acquisition mechanisms and, you know, other other means to sort of bring them in and allow them to get working with the government. Um, and a lot of that has worked and it's been successful, right? I mean, it's never been easier for a small company that wants to start doing work with national, uh, you know, a national defense agency um, to, to get going on that. At the same time, that work is not scaling. You know, it's not getting to the kind of scale that is really going to move the needle, uh, one, for those companies in terms of helping them grow and scale into larger companies, attract new investment, hire new engineers, all on the back of doing next generation kind of game changing defense work. 
And it's not going to scale to make an operational difference for the Department of Defense, which is which is arguably the most important thing that it you know uh, is 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 what needs to happen. And I and I think you know we're we're kind of at a point now where uh, a lot of the technology community, a lot of the investors behind them, you know, are are pretty close to walking away from the Department of Defense and the U.S. government sort of federal work, out of a sense that fool me once, shame on you; fool me twice, shame on me. We're not seeing the kinds of returns that you know that we need to sort of stay in this for real, and that's never going to be you know kind of the returns that you get uh, working purely in the commercial world. It's going to take longer. It's going to be harder. It's never going to be as large. Got all of that, um, but it still has to be on a on a trajectory where the kinds of companies that want to do this work uh, can actually become larger, more successful companies by doing it, and in so doing, right? I mean, create all the types of incentives that we're talking about here. To attract more talent, to attract more investment, uh, to create you know a, a sort of more vibrant defense industrial base, you know, with more viable companies competing with one another, to help us disrupt ourselves at a time where we desperately need it and where we're being disrupted by our competitors. Yeah, it's tough, but um, you know, I, I guess in the absence of a global consensus or at least a national consensus on this stuff, we do have some options. You, you talk a lot in your book about military mavericks. And their ability to shape military thinking and kind of act as catalysts to, to spur on a lot of that institutional change that you're talking about, sometimes at the lower level, but they can still work inside the system. And you say that change during peacetime often requires the efforts of leaders like these. But what are some key areas where we need Mavericks right now? I mean, it's a great question. I, I guess, you know, to, to kind of call out one, and that's I know is something that, you know, the Navy is increasingly focused on is autonomous systems low-cost autonomous systems in particular. From, from an operational needs standpoint, I don't see our ability to keep pace with our pacing threats uh, using the traditional kind of means and uh, the traditional systems that we've relied upon. We'll, we'll still need those systems in some degree, but, but a lot of this is ultimately about how do I get the kind of mass uh, to be able to compete with you know, what, are, what are large and increasingly getting larger competitors. We're, we're not going to win a shipbuilding race against the Chinese. We're already, we're already losing it. Um, so the question becomes, okay, well, how do I offset that intelligently? And I think the, the answer is I have to get autonomous systems actually into the fleet, into the force to help us solve operational problems, augment you know, what will always be you know, the limited number of people, the limited number of traditional systems that we're going to have uh, to enable us to just operate completely differently. And, 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 you know, again, there's lots of different elements to this problem, technological, budgetary, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of it comes down to how are human beings in these positions actually going to use these systems? How are they going to learn to trust them, ascertain their capabilities and limitations, kind of accelerate the development of technology on a pace that it can keep up with? But ultimately, how are they going to use them? And I think that's, you know, the, the critical thing that is breaking down right now, which is, you know, we get into this do loop of, you know, what's the requirement? I don't know. Like, you know, where's the money? How are you going to use it? I don't know. What am I being asked to use? There's, there's just a piece here where that is an area where we can be moving a lot faster, where the technology is available to change the way we're fielding systems and the systems that we're fielding. But, you know, I think we, we, we need to do something similar to what the Navy did in the interwar years with uh, aircraft carriers and carrier aviation, which is they very deliberately started focusing on how would I 
operate and employ these kinds of systems to just operate a completely different way based on the way that the threat is changing. That to me is something that we're, we're still not where we need to be on that. We're still not as organized as we need to be. Um, and we're not nearly moving as fast as we should be and could be to, to really create the kind of offsetting advantage that we're going to need through autonomy when we're dealing with competitors that are, that are large and getting larger. Well, it seems like a lot of our institutions, and I would say this is both inside the military and as well as the civil institutions, they, they seem to act against the efforts of folks like these, of these mavericks who are really to kind of buck the system and really try and go fast. So what challenges can a maverick expect to come up against? Yeah, I, I think at a very basic, you know, kind of human level, we do not create bureaucracies to generate disruptive change. You know, I've worked in government bureaucracies for most of my professional career. I'm not a hater on government bureaucracy. They're absolutely necessary institutions to do the thing that they are set up to do, right? I don't want innovation in waste management. I want garbage collection to happen every Monday morning at the time that it happened last Monday morning. I want routine. I want regularity, predictability, et cetera. We need bureaucracy to deliver that. But we can't expect our institutions uh, and the sort of bureaucratic institutions that we've set up to manage what it is we're doing to create totally disruptive approaches to the problems that they are solving in a certain way today. And that's where I think, you know, to your point about military Mavics and you know, my discussion of it in the book, that's where you just really need to stand up kind of alternative structures. And they don't need to be massive, you know, kind of new institutions with seals and challenge coins. They just need to be you know, an organization that is properly led, you know, so a, a person who actually has the vision, the vision and the ability to make change inside of the system uh, that we have, but arguably more importantly, is sort of sufficiently outside of that system uh, with a mandate and protection from senior leadership to try new things with the expectation that they're going to fail, but to a certain extent that they're not going to follow all the rules that the rest of the bureaucracy has to follow. Because that is, that, that, that's just not the problem that they're being asked to solve. And, and that's where I just, I, I, I don't see that happening. You know, I, I don't see that kind of connectivity from senior leader to kind of alternative organization. You know, again, in much the same way that I think, you know, it was done during the interwar years uh, with the Navy. But even then, you know, to your point about what challenges are you going to face? Like, I think, you know, military mavericks, wherever they live in that organization are going to expect that. The punishments and rewards of the bureaucracy are not going to align to the thing that they are trying to accomplish. They are inherently going to have to rock the boat or ideally be in another boat, you know, where they can rock it, you know, to their heart's content because that's their mandate. But they should also expect the, the sort of institution from which they came and to which they may go back, you know, to not necessarily be too fond of their attempts to really disrupt what it is that that or, you know, that organization does as core functions. So constant attacks, subversion from inside, um, the need for sort of higher ups to kind of protect these folks and the expectation that in the sort of long sweep of a career or how this plays out, you know, look, th these folks may end up sort of sacrificing some of their career to make the kind of change and the kind of difference that, that they want to make. And that's a hard, that's a hard personal question for a, for a human being to have to make, you know, who has a family and a mortgage and all things that are real considerations. But at the end of the day, I just I don't see another path to how we do this kind of inside of the institutions that we have. 
Um, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we've got to sort of blow the whole thing up. I'm actually not a believer in sort of like the revolutionary change theory. I'm more a believer that you have to sort of set up something um, and really someone off to the side and give them the ability to start incrementally experimenting. And then once they start showing results, those results need to be scaled very quickly, but they need to be scaled on the basis of real data points, you know, real sort of concrete evidence that this is something worth bringing to scale and worth driving the divestment of other things, right? I mean, we, we have a lot of this investment divestment conversation in a vacuum where, you know, we're being asked to invest in hopes and dreams that might field in 10 years and divest of real things that real human beings need today. We've got to get away from those types of false choices or, you know, the past is going to beat the future every time. Um, because, you know, anyone would rather have a real tool today uh, than have a real tool taken from the, you know, them today and the promise of, you know, maybe perhaps uh, getting a tool sometime in the future. So, again, all of this, I think, leads back to this is going to have to be something that, you know, is really incubated off to the side with the leadership of someone who understands uh, how to make this change and what change needs to be made. Uh, but with the real mandate from senior leadership, the protections and the authorities that flow down from them uh, that allow them to do the kinds of things that need to be done. Yeah, you give a good example of that, I think, in the book about uh, uh, General Bernard Shriver and the charge he got from President Eisenhower on developing an ICBM. And, and I think you talk about that a lot. You said his, his success largely came because he was given a challenge, but uh, or challenging, but very specific objective to accomplish and then that freedom to maneuver as well as that top cover from the the protus potus i mean you don't get much higher than that i think i'm starting to see some encouraging efforts to emerge similar to that you got like project overmatch that's that's going out there right now uh the strategic systems programs their hypersonic missile technology development they're doing alongside with the army is that the right approach uh, are, are we kind of getting there or is there a little bit more that's needed I, I can't say that I see kind of the full extent of, you know, the, the specific things you mentioned or other things that could be held up as an example. So, you know, I, I can't say whether we are or we aren't. I mean, what, what I would say is I think the other piece that worked in the case of Schriever and some of the other examples that I call out in the book is accountability. And as, as I've sort of been out of government and I've been, you know, kind of working with the government and looking at the government from the outside, the thing that really just has become, you know, more and more clear to me is, you know, the, the problem that we're really dealing with in government is the fractured nature of accountability, where, you know, you kind of go back to the discussion we were just having about this, this kind of system that we have to use to think about how we engage technology, you know, define requirements for it, buy it, et cetera. Those are all different communities of interest. The people who write requirements for technology are not the people who program for it or budget for it. They're not the people who acquire it. They're not the end users of it. All of those are different groups. Each is responsible for sort of its link in the chain. And if one of them doesn't do its part or doesn't do its part in a timely way, the whole thing breaks down. And everyone sort of, you know, does the, you know, fingers pointing in other directions of like, I think I did my part, but I think they failed it or they messed it up. And the only place that accountability really kind of resides is, you know, at, at way high senior levels, service chiefs or secretaries, people who don't have the time or I would argue the kind of granular information to make the right decisions in a timely manner. So what we get is a, a whole series of things that have to happen run by different people in different organizations. And unless all of those kinds of planets align, 
you, you don't actually get to the kind of outcome that you need. Um, and there's not, you know, kind of singularity of accountability where in the case of the ICBM, everyone knew that the sword was hanging over Shriver's head and he had the authority to be successful. So he had the resources at his disposal and the sort of entree up to senior leadership to say, if I need more resources, if I need more time or what have you, like I can go ask for it if that's the condition of success. But the expectation was now you are accountable for delivering the result. And that is you and you alone, you know, the team, obviously, that you're running. And, and I think that's the thing that I, I still don't see, uh, you know, kind of happening to the degree that it needs to in the sense of, you know, a convergence of these things together, you know, with, with real kind of singular authority and accountability in a person to deliver the result that is being expected. It's still too fractured across lots of different organizations that may or may not share the same views, may or may not have the same motivations may or may not even want the same thing. And if that's the system that we're relying upon to deliver unmanned systems or JADC2 or next generation weapons, we may get to the right answer or we may not. Um, and the question will be, well, whose fault was it if we don't get there? Who is the person that we are counting on to deliver success? And the answer can't be, oh, it's the Secretary of Defense. It's like, well, yeah, that and 18,000 other things that he has to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, we need to find a way to kind of devolve this authority and accountability down to a level where all of those functions, requirements, programs, budgets, acquisition, money, users can kind of be brought together to go deliver you know, real disruption on a, on a timeline that's relevant. Yeah, it's an important point to re-emphasize, and I appreciate you bringing it up. That triad of accountability, authority, and responsibility, I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And I think I am starting to see that a little bit in charges of individuals, whether it's at the two or three star level, where it's like they've got enough authority, but they're not that high up where they're covering everything in the entire defense department. So I'm encouraged with some of the things I'm seeing. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I don't think that it's happening to the extent that it needs yeah. to. I mean, you know, like without naming names, I mean, I you know, was talking the other day to someone quite senior in the acquisition arm of a service who was basically saying, look, like I am being asked, you know, my role in this is just to acquire systems. Um, and I acquire systems based on the requirements that I am given. And I'm here to tell you the requirements I'm being given make no sense and are not nearly taking the best use and the best advantage of the technologies that are at my disposal to go solve problems, but I don't have the mandate to rewrite my requirements. So I'm going to keep buying the thing that I am, you know, sort of in, in line with the requirement that I've been given and hope that through powers of persuasion and other, you know, kind of informal uh, kind of powers inside the bureaucracy, like maybe we can change the requirements to do different things uh, with the kinds of systems that we're, that we're acquiring. And, you know, th these are the kinds of things that I'm confident, you know, happen more than this one instance that I'm relaying anecdotally, but it gets again to that, that fractured nature of accountability how do we close that down so that we can actually disrupt ourselves rather than just kind of continue to do the things that we've always done? Um, and how do we do it faster? No, I appreciate the discussion. So, well, I want to shift gears a little bit on you. And, and you've mentioned technology. So I wanted to talk a little bit about enabling technologies. And, and you describe those as the, those technologies that will enable significant innovation, not just in the defense sector, but really all of industry. I think some of the examples you give are things like biotechnology, space exploration, uh, space technologies, artificial intelligence, uh, autonomy, which you talked about already. 
but I am curious a little bit about some of the moral implications of these enabling technologies. Are there some things that we just shouldn't pursue, even if our adversaries are doing it, or is everything on the table? I think there will always be things that we decide that we don't want to pursue, you know, for ethical reasons, policy reasons. There, there are things in the past that we've just decided are, you know, weapon systems that may or may not be effective, but you know, for moral reasons, we're we're not going there. Um, and in an ideal world, you know, we we create some kind of international consensus around that, so that we, you know, as a humankind can say these are things that are just beyond the pale. And we may get there with some of these technologies. Um, I hope we get there the easy way. But you know, if if history is a is a teacher here, you know, we, you know, humanity may get there the hard way, um, and only then after the fact realize that you know we probably don't want to use mustard gas. Um, in terms of these technologies, though, I think the bigger risk that we have right now is not are we are we sort of sufficiently banning things and sort of keeping them off limits. Um, I think it's that we're not even close to getting, uh, you know, sort of utilizing them uh, to the fullest extent of their ability now to say nothing of kind of where they could go. And, and I think, again, it comes down to this question of actually sort of pausing to think about how that process of change really unfolds. And I find so much of the conversation about this is somewhat unrooted from uh, just kind of the practical realities of both the technology as well as how the United States military in particular uses technology to solve problems. And, you know, basically, I don't see technologies like, you know, autonomous systems or AI-enabled systems as yet uh, kind of like qualitatively different than things that we have been, you know, doing in the past and the, and the ways in which we sort of come to use technology in military operations. And I think, you know, we've built up a system and an approach to thinking about, you know, kind of policy, law, practice and, and sort of norms that is still, I think, highly effective and relevant um, and will allow us to, you know, kind of bring these kinds of new technologies into military units, into military capabilities and, and employ them. And, and really, I think what it comes down to is first and foremost, you know, kind of how we think about training human beings to use them. And in the case of kind of more intelligent technologies, how we actually train those technologies. I think then it comes down to testing. Um, you know, again, there's this belief of like, yeah, we're just going to take these AI enabled robots and we're just going to like throw them down range and we're going to see what happens. And like anyone who's spent, you know, five seconds with, you know, a professional military organization understands that is not how it does business. That's not how it does business with people, right? We don't take 18-year-olds fresh off the street and just like put them on ships and send them to sea. You know, we train those people. We test those people to determine whether they can actually do the jobs that they are going to have to do in the kinds of conditions that they're going to have to do them. Um, and I think as technology uh, becomes more intelligent in this case, as machines are capable of doing more things autonomously that previously humans had to do, we're going to go through the exact same workflow. We're going to train them. We're going to test them. And then in the process of that, we're going to build up trust in their capabilities. We're going to begin to understand what their limitations are. We're going to write you know, concepts of employment and rules of engagement and all of the things that govern what you can and cannot do you know, with, with uh, you know, military technology. And I think that's a totally sane approach to how a military would actually begin to utilize these more advanced systems. I think we just need to get going on it faster. I think 
the only way we're going to really figure out what the answers are to these kinds of questions of what are the capabilities, what are the limitations, where are the lines, what are the lines that we don't want to cross, that we never want to cross, is we have to start building and fielding these technologies and getting them into the hands of you know human beings, American operators, so that, that we can actually have you know kind of a um, a better and truer answer to these questions rather than um, so much of this debate that sort of feels like you know arguing over you know angels dancing on the head of a pin because it's not actually rooted in real technology and real operators making real decisions. And, and by nature, I think what that means is that it's going to have to happen incrementally. We're not just going to kind of like leap a thousand years into the future here. The only way we're going to field this is, you know, just the incremented rapid sort of fielding, testing, rebuilding, retraining, refielding that, that actually generates progress. You know, the way Tesla has done it in the commercial world where, you know, if you had given me a Tesla as it is capable today, five years ago, I think most people would say like, no shot, I'm using that thing to just like drive down the highway and like change lanes and exit. But the incremental process of using it and adopting more features and learning to trust the autonomy has now put it, you know, put a human being in a position where it's prepared to trust that system to do things that five years ago, they would not have trusted the same system to do. So it's a journey that's going to have to happen. But unless that journey is actually being undertaken with real technology um, together with real operators, it's going to continue to be uh, kind of political theory. And you know that, that's my concern with where we are right now, which is, yes, there are going to be lines out in the future that we're going to draw and we're going to you know, commit as a country and ideally as a you know, international community not to cross. But the, the bigger concern to me right now is how do we actually start bringing these technologies into the ranks of our military operators to figure out how they would use them, how they would build up trust in them. And I actually think the system that we have used to do that with uh, the last generation of technology is not wildly wrong for how we should think about handling the next generation of technology. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, it was uh, Rear Admiral Wayne Meyer, the, the father of the Aegis Combat System, as I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, he had that old quote of what was it, build a little, test a little, learn a lot. And there was that incremental approach to small gains, but we're going to have high confidence in what we've accomplished. And, and I do think that is a positive way to do it. No, and, and the thing that I would underscore is, yeah, build a little, test a little, learn a lot, but then ultimately field something, right? I mean, so much of what we spend, you know, significant amounts of money in U.S. government money on ends up being, you know, interesting science projects, interesting kind of R&D efforts, prototypes, proofs of concept, um, but rarely do they make it across the valley of death to come into you know, a real fielded program that makes a difference. And again, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think you know, there's an aspect of this of we also have to realize that we've got to just get the 80% solution out the door. You know, we, we can't sort of take a, you know, a laboratory mentality to this and say like, I want to tinker with it until it's perfect. You know, we have to be much more pragmatic about, you know, getting something out, even if it's not necessarily kind of, you know, uh, the sexiest solution to the problem or necessarily solving the sexiest problems. Um, it's a process of how you just get that flywheel of innovation spinning so that you can begin uh, working through the process that you just described such that at the end of the day, you know, you're actually fielding systems that make a difference to military operations. Well, let me ask you this, because I think a lot of times these these newer technologies or these newer systems that are that are we think that are, hey, look, this can have an application in the fleet today. Um, a lot of times those discoveries happen, I think, at lower levels. 
And as you're aware, discussions between the military and Congress, they're very tightly controlled, you know, and, and, and I would say too, we never want to get crossways with our leadership inside the Pentagon, but are there ways where officers at the more junior level, and I'm talking below that flag, general grade level can, can really pop smoke, if you will, on promising new systems and technologies and, and still be, you know, respectful and preserve that chain of command. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I saw this every day when I was in the Senate, the, the general approach that it seems like, you know, is kind of taken in DOD to legislative affairs is, you know, do it as sparingly as possible, tell them nothing, you know, and, and it just doesn't foster a, you know, kind of a healthy dialogue, a, a constructive back and forth. And Pentagon briefers are regularly sent up, you know, kind of having uh, the fear of God put into them that, you know, if they say one crosswise thing or like air the slightest little bit of dirty laundry, right, they'll be drawn and quartered when you get back to the building. And, you know, again, not not conducive to the kind of exchange of ideas that really needs to happen. Um, and look, I'd be the first to also point the finger at Congress to say, if Congress doesn't make it a more conducive environment where oversight is not, you know, just uh, a fully violent sport, it's not vindictive, um, you know, where there genuinely is the sense between DOD and the Congress that like we are in the same boat rowing in the same direction and, you know, we, we are one team. We each have different jobs that need to be done. Um, but, you know, it, it's nonetheless kind of uh, against the same objective. Like it, it's going to continue to to break down. You know, I think uh, a lot of those conversations do happen sort of informally off the record. Um, I think I think they're always beneficial. And, you know, it's something that needs to continue to happen at, at all levels, junior levels, senior levels, because I think that's actually where the real exchange of information happens. The real trust is built, real rapport is built and, and real work gets done. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the other piece of this in terms of kind of the, the, the breakdown with Congress, you know, we, we have we have a lot of discussion about, you know, Congress constantly preventing the department from getting rid of old systems so that it can get into, uh, you know, save money or, or free up uh, money for modernization. And that's true. I mean, I, I saw this every day that I was on the Hill, uh, you know, was a, was a part of it in, in some times. But I find a lot of the problem is sort of not so much that it is Congress's unwillingness to divest of old things. It's that the new things that are sort of being promised aren't real yet. So the decision that always gets kind of put in front of the political leadership is, you need to sacrifice something that is real today, you know, a real capability that operators use that, you know, your constituents build, um, you know, that is, you know, money being spent that matters. And what will replace it will be something that, you know, will deliver in 2032. And I find that, you know, that conversation would go a lot better if what we were actually promising in terms of future capability was delivering faster. You know, it kind of goes back to the conversation we've been having for the past hour of how do you do that? That conversation goes a lot differently, you know, when you're able to say to the Congress, look, we've been incrementally and rapidly sort of develop, developing and, you know, validating this new thing over here. And, you know, it's ready to start going to scale. Um, but in order to start getting it to scale, we have to start divesting this thing over here that it's ultimately going to replace so that it becomes more of an incremental sort of divest a bit, invest a bit, you know, field a bit, pull back and retire some things rather than, you know, kind of in one budget year, we have to make these massive moves that are highly disruptive and there isn't sort of sufficient political support for. So to me, it's it's not so much that the Congress wants to keep the department locked in the past. It's that both the Congress and the department can't figure out how to get the future to actually deliver 
on, on something like a relevant timeline that will allow us to make these kinds of past future trade-offs uh, in a more relevant way. That in and of itself, I think, you know, would go a long way to, you know, creating better uh, ability to work together between the Congress and the DOD. And I mean, again, you know, I, I see it because I talk to both sides regularly. I mean, everybody wants to change. I mean, there's a, there's a strong desire to do this. Everyone is just wrestling with how do we actually do this in the system that we have built up for ourselves? Well, I appreciate your insights and, uh, and particularly how things work up there on the Hill. Um, but uh, speaking of the Hill, so I, I cannot have you on without asking you for a good John McCain story, because I know you worked with him for a long time and, and uh, kind of one of the original Mavericks. So what's your favorite memory of working with him? Um, God, it's a great question. And there's like too many to choose from. Um, I'll, so I'll, I'll give you two briefly, um, you know, kind of one, one serious, more a little uh, lighter. Um, on the lighter note, we went to, uh, we went to Mongolia in 2013 and, you know, we, we went out of the capital Ulaanbaatar to see the president of Mongolia out in, uh, you know, kind of, a uh, an, an area where he wanted to meet, you know, kind of out in the Mongolian steppe. And we had a lunch meeting planned with him and that went a few hours and it was like two o'clock and we didn't have anything to do. And, you know, the president of Mongolia said like, Hey, do you guys want to go fishing? Like, yeah, sure. Let's go fishing. So, you know, his security detail grabs uh, some adult beverages out of the bar and we drive like another hour deeper out into the Mongolian steppe. And, you know, we get to what's like a pretty large river, like not a creek, not a stream, like a legit river. And I'm sitting here thinking like there's no bridge that is like clearly passable for the SUVs that we're driving in. Um and then like the vehicle that had John McCain and the president uh, immediately in front of me just drives into the river and, you know, it has a snorkel on it. But I'm sitting here thinking like John McCain is going to die under my charge and I am going to be held accountable for, uh, you know, the loss of a senator on a congressional delegation in Mongolia. Sure enough, like they drive down the water lines at like the roof of the car, but like out they pop the other side and then we go off and do the same. And uh, anyway, we drive for a little while longer, um, pull up to a different part of the river and hop in boats. And for the next like three hours, uh, go down river fishing with the president of Mongolia. And there's like wild horses running along the side of the river. I mean, it was completely wild, like the kind of thing that, you know, you're sitting there in the moment thinking like, I'm only doing this because I'm with this like remarkable human being and never will I do something like this again. Really awesome story. And, you know, there's like all kinds of policy and, you know, kind of boring other angles to it. But it was just, uh, it was, uh, the thing that was great about McCain was just the adventures that you got to go on and the things he wanted to do and how he always made government service fun. And it was just kind of one colorful example. In a similar sense, um, I did get to go to Vietnam with him um, on more than one occasion. And, uh, you know, on one of these trips, I mean, that was just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And, you know, it always led him to be more introspective and to open up about things that he didn't really just kind of talk about day to day in the office. And um, on, on one of those trips, you know, we actually went out in a boat in Haiphong Harbor. And, you know, again, for work reasons, I won't bore you with, but, you know, just sat there for a few hours and he just opened up about all the different bombing runs that they used to run and, you know, operations that they did, people they lost. Um, it was just a phenomenal kind of entree into um, just the experiences that he had, the things that he did, the ways that it sort of shaped his thinking about policy decisions that we were having to wrestle with that, you know, kind of in that time. And um, again, you know, the 
I think the the what's the old line, right? That um, you know, no man is a hero to his valet. Uh, the great thing about McCain was like, you know, on a pretty regular basis, you were reminded that this guy genuinely was a hero, and um, you know, it's just you know, honor of a lifetime to have the opportunity to work for him. Oh, that's pretty cool. I appreciate you sharing those with us. So. I have one last question for you before we let you go. And I ask this of everybody. It's my favorite question every time. Uh, so aside from the kill chain, do you have any good book recommendations for us? Uh, yeah. So, um, gosh, I mean, I'll just kind of tell you what I'm reading now. You know, just finished the first volume of Ian Toll's uh, War in the Pacific trilogy. Um, I think the first one's called Pacific Crucible. Just, you know, really, really well done, you know, very well written, very accessible, but, you know, just also really interesting to kind of go back and you look at the types of, you know, operational, technological, kind of political, strategic challenges that we were wrestling with in the opening kind of days, months, years of, uh, you know, the war in the Pacific. And, you know, what's again, the old line, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes a hell of a lot. I mean, there's a heck of a lot there that is very relevant to the types of problems that we're dealing with today. Um, it's also just a, a remarkable story um, and and just really well told. So, you know, highly recommend it. At the same time, um, you know, reading the, uh, the Idea Factory, which is a book about um, the period of time, you know, where Bell Labs uh, was really kind of at the forefront of all kinds of innovation from, you know, 1920, 1930 through to like 1970, 1980, uh, really kind of, you know, the launching of the telecommunications revolution and other things that it was responsible for. But it's more a story about what makes innovation. You know, a lot of the conversation that we're having today, you know, why does it happen? How does it happen? What kinds of people lead it? Um, what are the kind of underlying raw material incentive structures that generate just kind of like wild disruptive change, uh, but nonetheless, you know, kind of resulting in pragmatic capability that, that really changes the way we, we, we use technology and work and operate. Um, so a very cool book about, you know, those kinds of questions told through the story of, of Bell Labs. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm reading other stuff as well, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, end with those two, which are, which are both worthwhile. Well, I appreciate that. Well, hey, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And and I think there's a lot of important lessons for our community as, as well as the larger military to take from your book and uh, from your experience up there on the Hill. So again, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you for what uh, you guys do and your listeners. Um, you know, really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Chantel Lavender. If you like what you heard today, be sure to give us a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. It helps others discover the show and allows us to keep getting great guests like the one you heard today. We look forward to meeting again in The Wardroom.